0: Hello and welcome to episode seven of Of Poetry Podcast with Jessica Q. Stark. Jessica Q. Stark is a California native, Vietnamese American poet, editor, and educator living in Jacksonville, Florida. She holds a BA from UC Berkeley and dual MA degrees in English literature and cultural studies from St. Louis University's Madrid campus. She received her PhD in English from Duke University. She has published scholarly articles on poetry and comics studies, and teaches writing at the University of North Florida. Her full-length poetry collection, Savage Pageant, which was a finalist for the Cleveland State University Poetry Center Book Prize, the 42 Miles Press Book Prize, and the Rose Metal Press Hybrid Book Prize, was published by Birds LLC in March 2020. Savage Pageant was named one of the best books of 2020 in the Boston Globe and in Hyperallergic. Her third poetry manuscript, Buffalo Girl, explores a short time in her mother's life, Vietnamese diasporic wolves, and different iterations of Little Red Riding Hood. She occasionally writes poetry reviews for Carolina Quarterly, and is currently a poetry editor for Agni and a comics editor for Honey Literary. Jessica, welcome to Of Poetry Podcast.
1: Thank you, Nan.
0: Would you like to open us with a poem?
1: Sure.
2: Um, I will read. I'll just read one poem from Savage Pageant, which was my book that um, was published in 2020, and I'm going to read one that I kind of rarely read out loud for some reason, <laughs> but I think is is kind of the secret kernel of the whole collection, and it's called real live rumors. Not a fact, not a lock left unlatched, not the kind of city where you should, not a detail, not an unopened note, not a punctuation, not an error, not a last resort, not a misspelling nor a slip of the tongue. This is a moth caught in a strange flash and bowl This is a blank slate of dream filled with unmentionables. This is a cat with odd toes and a nice look, a home in a suburb filled with long shots, an unhurried portrait, a whisper of a friend, secrets written on the table after dark.
0: Mm, That is so good. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I suppose I should add that Jessica and I have a history together and we were both graduate students at Duke at the same time during our English PhDs and we also ran a poetry reading series together for a year that Jessica had been had been her project um, for multiple years while at Duke called the Little Corner Poetry Reading Series um, and that was phenomenal. So we are very good friends. Um, and I just wanted to add that. <laughs> so just to make sure everyone knows, I love you. Thank you for being here.
2: Oh, thank you for having me. I I feel so lucky and fortunate to have, I don't know, we should add too that. We didn't really hang out until later <laughs> in the program that there was a few years of, um, in ways that our lives didn't interlock. And the intensity of, of the connection I feel with you is, I think, more punctuated by that absence, if that mm.
1: makes sense,
2: <laughs> in the beginning because of life circumstances and whatnot.
0: Yeah, you know, I was thinking this morning, though, that one of my first memories of you is that I had an 18-month-old when I began to program, so I was already having mm-hmm. my children And um, I think it was in like the first couple days. Right. And I remember this like really pretty girl with brown hair said to me, like, oh, if you ever need a babysitter, let me know. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, whoa, like, and, you know, it was, it was someone in my cohort and that was you. And um, I was like very impressed by that. And like, I thought that was such a generous offer um, because sometimes when you have children, uh, you get treated like a weird animal or. <laughs> <laughs> Which I
1: understand. Yes,
0: yes. Um, but thank you for reading that poem. What was the title of that poem again?
2: Real life rumors.
0: Real life rumors. Mm-hmm. I love the word "latch" that comes up in Savage Pageant, um, and you know that it it does the work across motherhood for you and secret definitely. keeping and um, archive. You know, opening something up that's been closed, and um, and it's just a beautiful sonic word, I think. So oh, definitely comes but up. Yeah, really-
2: to your point, the. And I feel like it's funny because this was very pre-motherhood when I was writing the corpus of this book and it has so many more imbued meanings now (laughs) after breastfeeding and things like that. But um, it definitely has that maternal link even before my knowledge of it or, you know, embodiment of that. But yeah, of course, it's like, I love, I love latch. I love the word hinge, you know, Mm -hmm. but these, um, these words that kind of signify connection, but can be completely, I mean, I feel like this relates to our relationship, right? Like these, these things that, that fit so nicely together, once you really take a look at them or spend time with them, but can completely exist in different parallels if you'd like, if you, you know, don't pay enough attention or um, entertain the various, distractions of this world
1: you know
0: Hmm. yeah it makes me think too that you and I have a lot we both do work with silence in our work um and I know this has to do with um archives and different kinds of archives um which makes me want to ask first you know what does it mean to you to be someone who works with archives, both in Savage Pageant and in your um, your work in progress, Buffalo Girl. Mm-hmm. And what's intangentially, and like we can I can repeat this later, but what's your relationship to documentary poetics?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I I think it's and you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on your approach to it as well, but it's totally symptomatic of our training as scholars in a lot of ways. You know, I came to the page as a poet first as a, uh, you know, a thinker, a um, and a, con- a consumer of words, uh, a consumer of archives, and the more time you spend in them. Um, and, you know, I, I spent a little time working in the library at the end of my time at Duke as well. Um, I spent time working in the library in my undergrad as well. Um, But the more time you spend with these, you know, archival materials, and especially if you're peeking behind the curtain, you really get a sense of how subjective they are. Um, You meet the actual people that have curated these whole stories within history. And you, you know, you meet them and you see they're human and they're full of bias. And it's mind blowing in some ways how arbitrary some, of these very, you know, approached as neutral seeming archives can be. Um, So that all to say that is what really piqued my interest in terms of what like language, you know, that is understood conventionally as a neutral uh, ground maybe perhaps for not poets, but like language, I feel that archives and the thought of the archive has just so much potential for play for revealing um, the multitude of biases and subjective curation that have gone into, you know, what makes a history, what makes a personal story, what makes a word, what makes an etymology of a word. Like I, I feel like these are all informant of one another. Um, so for me, I came to, to documentary poetics and the archive in terms of curiosity, in terms of Silence to speak back to what you just said, and 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 kind of challenge um, whether or not there are things missing, which of course there are, um, but also just kind of question the nature of presentation, um, how we present our own histories, how we present our national histories, um, how we present um, you know histories that are seemingly objective or neutral ground, but aren't. I'm interested with all of these kind of questions and um cantankerous
1: perspectives
0: (laughs) yeah no i i think that you know it's interesting that you bring it up from the academic and the work and um i don't know i almost consider it like like the serious side of archives um because one of the things that documentary poetics for me really brings um to the document right that a lot of mm-hmm. other fields don't is play mm-hmm. um, that it you know intrinsic to documentary studies is like you want to play with something you know even even something is like really, you know, kind of serious and violent and legal as you know the documents that say in the board say uh, Phillips is working with his song. Mm-hmm. um you know she plays with it still and um and has to be open to that play and I think that's really I don't know there's something really interesting there's something that you get with poetry that you don't get from any other field and it just right. opens up the document in so many incredible ways and to be able right. to see it in new ways like scholars aren't going to do erasure work on a document
2: oh. <laughs> yeah. Right, again, because I think a lot of these things are taken for granted as, you know, like I said, like neutral ground or unbiased or objective truth, but, you know, and this this kind of goes back to a lot of my work with the scholarly stuff on my dissertation, which I haven't touched and it's gathering dust in shelves. I, 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 I think it'll stay there for several years. <laughs> but um, what I was interested in is like thinking about poetries and poets across time and how there's so many other things beyond their work that inform how we think of them so classic example who i looked at really closely um was gertrude stein i also looked at amiri baraka but just the way that they're how our impressions of them right now thinking of them as you know in the contemporary moment as contemporary poets like we think of them only as their the the page but there's so much else there's editors there's publicity, there's um, gossip around, you know, certain uh, wild acts that they did in public that may or may not have happened. So I think this is all related in that, you know, um, it's also really invested in rethinking how uh, histories and stories about certain people or places um, really are you know, informed by all of the, this detritus or, you know, noise and and how to kind of
1: make
0: your way through there. Yeah. Mm, I love that you bring up those examples. Um, You've worked a lot with hybrid text as well, and your work um, can be considered hybrid work, right? Um, That you work with visual art Mm -hmm. and that you've done, you know, work with comics and you've worked with scenes um and i think that that is also something really interesting that you bring to documentary poetics that you're bringing um that hybridity and again i think the play the play comes into it for you in a really a really cool and productive way um with especially i'm thinking about savage pageant you know just the the fields and the stories and the narratives um and the histories you're able to kind of cross and link is pretty incredible um do you want to do you want to say what your main um
2: Draw, inspirations
0: are you.
2: yeah okay, sure um oh i have so many inspirations in terms of hybrid artists i oh i feel like a broken record but Teresa Hopkins dictate which i read um you know, several, several years ago, over a decade ago um, in undergrad, it was something that confused and frustrated me, but really unlocked a lot of what um, I love about what, you know, a text can do. Um, Banu Kapiel's work as well has really informed me and, and, you know, again, opened up the possibilities for what poetry can look like. I recently read, um, my fellow editor's interrogation room um, by Jennifer Kwan Dobbs and it's also a hybrid text and it just takes some really beautiful, um, just an amalgamation of different documents like letters and photographs and uh, a mixture of languages and it's just really um, expansive and sprawling and I really enjoyed that as, as a hybrid text. But Dahimba Jess's Olio, you mentioned um, R.B.C. Phillips um, song, which I've taught a number of times. Um, yeah, so those are you know artists that I deeply admire, but um, I, I mean, as well as, you know, I, I was really into Joe Brainerd's comics work and thinking about how his comics work as poetry. I enjoy kind of looking at things that people take for granted. So, you know, um, the illustrated line or comic, um, thinking about how that can speak to um, trauma, historical trauma, uh, personal traumas. Um, you know, we take all of these things for granted, but the subjective line can really do a lot of undoing um, in terms of, you know, how we how we just sort of exist in our daily existence and, and pare that down in a really interesting way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think hybridities for me, uh, I was just talking to a colleague about this the other day. We are talking about like our department and, I mean, at this point I've taught intro to creative writing quite a bit to undergrads. And I always sort of reserve um, a space at, usually towards the end of the course where um, they can play with hybridities or they can play with, you know, different uh, amalgamations of so-called genres that we've been working through. And I feel like this is always the sort of section that keys up my students because I feel like it just really blows open the door, but it's like, but again, I think it's closer, um, it's more truthful or honest about how we read on a day-to-day basis, especially, you know, this younger generation, but it's our contemporary reading practices. Like there's just so many ways that we read, mostly digitally, mostly, you know, scrolling beyond all of these visual signifiers, whether or not we're mindful of them, but the, you know, the scrolled by ad, the meme, Um, and I feel that hybrid literature, um, and I think this is how, you know, people like Joe Joe Brainerd or, or, you know, Teresa Hockum-Cha, of course, were really precursors to a different kind of reading that was emerging. Um, but yeah, I, I just like, I'm, I'm drawn to the way that it, it more is truthful to contemporary reading practices and how we're constantly reading, um, you know, so many different forms of genres while we're reading, um, you know, words, language on a page or on a screen. Does that make sense?
0: No, that really does. Um, I love, I love thinking about that. And, um, and it's so good to hear your students' response. Um, it's, I, you know, it's something I find that I can never predict how, you know, if, if you're doing an erasure day or something with your students, like, how are they, they going to like it? Are they going to think it's easy? Is it going to, you know, um, last time I think it, we, I did a, an erasure workshop and, um, and they did some really cool, I mean, we did erasures of Shakespeare's sonnets and, you know, we put a bunch of different text, Um, and that was really cool that I think that was, really um instructive in that oh it's actually like a lot of work to find your own words in someone else's text um i don't know if you saw that mary ruffle erasure of um the robert frost poem stopping by the woods in the snowy snowy evening and it was going around twitter the other day and um I didn't think that was possible. I literally did not think it would be possible to write a good erasure of a Robert Frost poem. I just, oh, wow. I feel so locked into Frost. I don't think I, but it was incredible. And I love being showed that like, Oh, here's something you thought wasn't even possible. Right. Um, Tracy K. Smith's um, declaration. That's how I felt with that text. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, what you know it's interesting hearing the influences you cite and realizing um that there's been such a incredible kind of boom and proliferation in documentary um poetic text and um, and there are some forerunners you know um that you've mentioned some of them and dictates on my list of um books to spend time with but i could tell i needed a lot of time so i think i've kind of preserved it and i haven't Maybe you know, I was like, no, that's not okay. a Seeley challenge book that isn't <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> totally. like spend a few weeks. Agree. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um but yeah, I lost my train of thought.
2: Well, I think, I mean, to your point, like I I think and I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of, you know, why I'm attracted to hybridities or why I'm particularly excited about teaching them, or why, you know, a large amount of my students get Uh, feel like they get, you know, something flips in them in terms of a switch, in terms of hybridities. But I just really think that we're living in this moment of intense uh, immersion of repetition. (laughs) Like really intense immersion of repetition, different permutations. Like think about like just the act of going onto the interface of Twitter every day. And then like, you know, one little feature, like the font or something gets flipped and it's like, oh my God. But then it's like, think about how many times you've come to the same screen and looked at the same font and looked at the same interface and scrolled the same. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, and of course I think about meme culture too, and how much creativity is imbued and and potential in that sort of seemingly silly practice of creating memes or different words around the same image, but what a permutation. Like Stein would have a field day, hmm. you know, of this kind of embodiment of the factory in some sense, but then also proliferating and going in all directions. <laughs> so I think there's, I, I mean, I'm not sure if I'm articulating it well, but I think there's something there in terms of, um, you know, rethinking a lot of either the visual signifiers or the linguistic signifiers that we take for granted on a day-to-day basis. And that um, relates back to my composition of Savage Pageant, thinking about Google Maps and even looking up a place on Google Maps is a relatively new phenomenon. Like I still remember MapQuest and like printing out driving (laughs) directions, but yet it becomes so, um, it's like the hedonic adaptation, right? It becomes like this, uh, thing that was so new at this one point. And then in a relatively short amount of time, you're like, when was I never, when, when was I ever not doing this? You know?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so I think that everything is moving very quickly and it's going to continue to accelerate and, um, paying attention or slowing that down for me, um, I think is important work and something that I need for my own, like self-posterity. <laughs> if that makes sense <laughs>
0: no I, I think that really does um and it's really interesting I mean even thinking it's just you know the material changes and and that matters in our lives I mean you just make me remember the printed out maps on the you floorboards of my car
2: <laughs> and then if you went the wrong way you're like totally screwed <laughs> yeah yeah. you missed one of the steps
0: I have to say the thing I have the most nostalgia for is, um, a telephone cord, um, like a telephone on the wall with a really long cord. Yeah, totally um, cause I don't know about you, but my mother added one of those like 16 foot cords. So she would oh like God. walk the around the whole house phone. talking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then cordless phones, right? Cordless phones were then a really big deal.
2: Yeah, they were.
0: And now you can't get me on the phone. I really hate phones. Um,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: my mother is literally the only person I call on the phone. Uh, well, maybe my editor. <laughs> right. <laughs> right.
1: Um,
0: I, I rem- remember my train of thought, which was um, thinking about the proliferation of, of documentary poetics and how there's such an incredible, I mean, uh, poetry. <sighs> Well, okay, so a, it does, it has gotten so much more diverse in terms in terms of the authors. Um, but B, the attention has changed to be open to that diversity because um, I was just talking with um, C. T. Salazar on episode yeah. six of, of Poetry, and we were talking about um, how they really thought like, um, modernism was really boring until they started reading black modernists and they were like oh no black modernism's <laughs> amazing right. and exactly right like there are tons of black modernists um or, or the fact that you know wanda coleman's sonnets aren't featured in any sonnet anthologies um so it's it's interesting like yeah there's there's definitely this shift so we have a diversity of perspectives and so we have a lot of um you know, confronting power structures and um, throughout, I mean, if you look at these texts, you know, in erasure is one of the functions of erasure. There's play, but there's also violence and doing violence to language and being like, you know, I'm going to cut. And I mean, there's that amazing quote in Nabrassi um, Phillips' essay in the back of song, right? Where she talks about all the things she's doing to the language and, and she's uses all these very violent verbs. Um, so I think about that too. And, mm-hmm. you know muriel ruckheiser is one of the earlier like the book of the dead right um but one of the things that i don't love about book of the dead is that it's so documentary focused that the poet and the speaker is very is not in there Mm -hmm. uh, is not present in the text as much um and so for me one of the big draws is when that person is present, and like with Philip, you know she's present via the essay, right, in the right. back, and um, and I think that's something you do incredibly in your work, especially in Buffalo Girl. Well, I mean, you do this in Savage Pageant as well, um, and especially the way you know your pregnancy folds in among poems and certain mm-hmm. week stages, and you know the places you're talking about are sites you physically visited. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's that, um, and then a Buffalo girl. Of course, your mother is more central, and um, that that I think that that rooting and that anchoring for me is so compelling, and that's what I get most interested in. So, Ruckeiser in many ways is like one of the you know one of those people we look at as a forerunner and early documentary poet, but um, it's doing some really really cool things.
2: Yeah, it's um, thinking about the personal and like, I feel like Buffalo Girl in general is like a little bit more personal than like, I think I would have had comfort with maybe five years ago or so. Mm. Um, And I've also thought about this a lot too. Like I feel like Savage Pageant, it was supposed to be about this place. And then I let myself like kind of weaken a little bit um, just because I felt like I couldn't not, Um, but that there was discomfort with that certainly um and I was thinking about this in terms of like my heritage and being raised by a very strong Vietnamese American woman and a lot of it of my rearing was like it's not about you <laughs> like it was like I'm, I'm the la- I'm the youngest of four um women and um I just felt like growing up, it was like the refrain was like, it's not about you and like respect your older sisters, uh, which like kind of left me in a very like weird place, like in terms of power dynamics, <laughs> being the youngest of this, uh, you know, family of big personalities. But I think it does inflect, I guess, some of my discomfort of like, I, I don't think I, I don't know. Like, I think maybe that's what documentary is doing for me too, is like sort of like, untethering myself from myself and like thinking about community, like thinking about how this relates. Like I couldn't just write about myself. And I think it's culturally, it's like culturally imbued from my, you know, Asian-American upbringing of like, it's not about you. (laughs) So Buffalo Girl, I felt was like a little bit um, deeper inward. And maybe that's inflected by the pandemic, which like, you know, I wrote the whole thing um, during all of this bullshit. Um, but I, yeah, like, I think it's like, and I think it's still like a little, um, like too close for comfort, but that's okay. I think I'm okay with it. Um, and I think, um, you know, writing about my mother and the myriad of acts and repercussions that happen, um, from the war in Vietnam that aren't like, you know, really distinguishable or lucid forms of PTSD and like fol- focalizing that is a radical act. Um, so I've given myself some grace to look a little bit closer at myself, but for many, many years that was deeply uncomfortable to do. And I think also that might be symptomatic of being a scholar too, right? It's like, that's like a writing 101. that's like, don't talk about yourself. And it's taken me several years to like undo that.
0: Yes, I was thinking about that with Ruckheiser as well, that that is probably a trend. Um, right. That it's somehow more, you know, it's more right. objective if you're not there, right? Right, or um, a grant or something silly, you know? Yeah, but then poetry is so interested in subjectivities. And
1: um, mm.
0: Mm. Would you like to read
1: something from Buffalo? Sure. Park? I would love to. So I'll read, um, I guess I'll read the opening <clears throat> poem. I should say one of the opening poems. Um, and then I'll think I'll,
2: I'll read one either now or later, one that kind of embodies what I just said in terms of that um, personal terrain that felt very dangerous. But um, I'll read the more kind of macro. Um, poem first and it's called uh, Phylogenetics and it comes with an epigraph um, from a version of Little Red Riding Hood that states, there was a lonely cabin within a dark old wood and
1: in it with her mother there dwell Red Riding Hood. Phylogenetics. When it
2: began isn't clear, but isn't it obvious that we always had a knack for stories about little girls in danger? Nice girls, stupid girls, naughty girls, girls bleeding and holding baskets of wine, each not another route to pity blame the foul. Why not a hard edge for once? Let the girl wander where she pleases, for the moral of the story isn't always the same. And how's the one go where she doesn't die alone and pretty? where no huntsman comes around to cut for out? Who will answer for the anonymous limb taking? Where once a wood, a rice paddy, where once a hole, a tooth. Songs of the buffalo girl, wet strands in a basket, housing figures that know their way around in the dark. Look now to little red cap, taking all of her known objects to bed, taking off,
1: her overcoat to reveal fine downy fur. Wow. Wow, I love that coming after
0: you talking about um, it's not about you and respect (laughs) respect your older sisters, which wow, Um, something I have, always loved about your poetry since i first started reading it was the kind of coolness like it's always been a coolness to your poetry um and to the language that it's i think it's just it's very smart about itself and um has a lot of you know a very smart humor i think too um so i think like when you turn that and And it becomes a a critical end for the, critical ends for the poems. Um, I think it's pretty incredible. Thank you. (laughs) Um, So it's really interesting to me about, you know, thinking about womanhood and girlhood and your work in both Savage Pageant, but even more so in Buffalo Girl. And um, I, it's very interesting to me to think about, you know, who gets to write and who ends up finding their voices in their writing. And um, I think I was told more uh, not to be vain. I was constantly told not to be vain, which wasn't a problem. I don't know. It was a weird, um, (laughs) like, didn't come from a words of affirmation uh, background, um, which I think people might not know if you like, about me, but um, you know, had parents like like mother that could not say I love you, um, and you know, becoming a mother, I think it gives you such a different right uh, lens for your own mother, and so that when knows. you're doing that motherhood work in your poetry, it just, um, I think it's a really powerful narrative and something to think about. You have that amazing image of your mother. Mm. On, it's she's on like a moped, right?
2: Yeah, she's on a Vespa. Yeah, a uh, borrowed Vespa, which I learned later. Which I'm like, oh, beautiful! And she's on like, she's got like high heels on, like ridiculously high heels, <laughs> and like a you know a really modern styled ao dai at the time. Um, yeah, I and love
0: that image. Was it taken in Vietnam? Is that? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I was taken in Vietnam. I think it was about two years before she left. So probably 1973.
0: And um, is that going to feature on Buffalo Girl?
2: It is. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's the last image. And most of the images, um, so all of the photographs are mostly taken from a series that was taken uh, around the same day as that image. And most of the other image I've um, manipulated and made, some collage work in terms of mincing it with um, the closest woods that I have to me here in Florida, which um, it's funny because there's a lot of parallels because of the humidity here in terms of the foliage in Southeast Asia. Um, and one of the first like thoughts that I had when I moved down here I was like, oh, it feels like it feels like Vietnam. <laughs> like, um, so I minced a lot of these photographs with um, you know the woods that punctuate my current life. Um, and of course, there's a lot of work going on in terms of uh, rethinking, dismantling, challenging, uh, different iterations of Little Red Riding Hood and the woods in that you know, folkloric tale that is very shape-shifting, almost always center around a kind of punitive perspective on errant female sexuality, um, or at least the danger, the threat of errant sexuality. Um, so, all to say, yes, that image does feature, um, but it's the only, uh, it's the only one I decided not to edit. Um, and it comes very much at the end. Um, I kind of wanted to have, uh, you know, after this collection that very much speaks about my mother, um, I wanted her to have the last say, I guess, in that image.
0: Mm, I love that. I think because it's such a powerful image I've been thinking of it as like the cover and but I love that it's it's like the final yeah um you've really helped me think about my own work in terms of what comes last and what should come last too um I think sometimes I tend to lead with things when I need to not lead with them (laughs) both in life and in poetry um and that's really helpful to think about and I love that you bring up Florida and Vietnam because um my final question for you is about you know since you lived in Durham North Carolina for years and now you're in Jacksonville Florida with your family um what's been your experience of living in the South and now going deeper South. And I kind of had thought about that being like, well also Southeast Asia being another one of your South. So you have this very inflected South.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's been, I spent seven years in Durham and I was kind of, I lived in only pretty big cities, you know, urban cities. I lived in uh, Brooklyn most immediately, but I was in Madrid, Spain and Seoul, South Korea and San Francisco is where I met my partner. Um, grew up near LA, so Durham was the real, um, but it was such a soft awakening because Durham is such a blue bubble in some respects. Um, and Jacksonville, Florida is a lot more uh, confrontational in terms of it being stereotypically the South and in terms of, you know, um, it's not monolithic politically. Um, however, that being said, I was faced with a lot of uncomfortable cultural, Southernness, I guess, when I moved to Durham, and I think the most kind of awkward growing pains I had was realizing that, you know, growing up in California, you're you have so many friends and peers and stuff that are mixed race, um, that are specifically half Asian, specifically even half Vietnamese, that that just wasn't a it was taken for granted by me in terms of that that is a somewhat unique feature of growing up in Southern California maybe Northern California too um whereas Durham I feel like for the first time I was like not my white passingness was I was really confronted with how much I passed as white um or that like how much I didn't feel quite like you know one way or the other like I do recognize I have an incredible amount of privilege by passing white but at the same time like I have such a strong connection to my Vietnamese American upbringing. Um, So I just, I guess I felt a little bit more confronted with the discomfort of my my whiteness, my white passingness, my white presentation, whatever. Um, And I think that that forced me in a lot of respects to figure out what was so important in terms of my Vietnamese American upbringing. What is something that I can't let go? What is something that I don't want mistranslated? And I think that, um, the result of a lot of that pain was, um, the development of Buffalo girl. Hmm. I'm like thinking of that meme now thinking of memes of that felt, like, I forgot what show it's from. I don't even know the referent, but it's like that woman. And she's like sitting back and she's like, I'm going to write, I keep thinking of like, uh-huh. I'm going to write a book that is so- Uh, just because like I feel like I was mistranslated a multitude of times and still am. And I understand that, you know? And again, there is an incredible amount of privilege in terms of being white presenting, but there is a colonial erasure there, of course, right? There's an erasure um, of, of, of myself if I accept it as such. Yeah. If I accept that gaze.
0: Yeah, and then what happens when you redirect
2: it. Right. Um, I know I can't tell you how many times I've I've redirected it in the, you know, in the past 10 years and I can't tell you how many times people have met me with like a really confused look. <laughs> like they would just be like, "Wait, what do you mean?" Like it really like it, there's just like maybe it's like about 5 seconds, but there's just this really distinctive look of like, it just doesn't register, you know? Like, and I've had, yeah, just like a lot of moments of like microaggression um, when people met my mother or something like that. And of course this also informs Buffalo Girl. There's a poem that specifically voices a lot of these questions that I get, you know, and are maybe not uh, being a mixed race person. People don't think you experience racism or something as as heavily, but, it's, there were so many microaggressive comments I got, especially when people meet my mother and they're like, you know, questions like, um, can she understand me? I'm like, yeah, she's been speaking English for most of her life. <laughs> like, yeah. I had somebody say, um, I can't believe you, she raised you and you don't have an accent, which I'm just like, wow, like I'm, I grew up in California. Like, why would I have an accent? <laughs> Um, but yeah, so again, I guess Buffalo Girl has, it contains a lot of that rage, um, of which, you know, in the moment I am so guilty of just being like laughing it off, you know, or smoothing it over, avoiding the confrontation, which I, I mean, again, I think that's, um, culturally contingent as well, but, um, trying to be better about, not doing that but you know i had to put my rage somewhere so it's definitely in buffalo girl
0: <laughs> good <laughs> good because i mean you know talking about documentary and archives and silence um i think it's just white white folks have to can do some work on confronting their own silences and their own illusions, and not mean that is some hard work and so many i mean when i sit it just makes me so angry i mean i think anger is the right response but um i've i've never met another white person who's done genealogy work to look at whether their ancestors enslaved in the south i mean and that makes me mad um like what what did you go to your genealogy for if you did it's usually like oh they want to see if they related to someone cool <laughs> related and, to like Daniel
2: Boone or whatever
0: yeah, and I'm like no actually we should have a genealogy show and just the conclusion <laughs> is always, like bad because <laughs> everyone I mean it doesn't matter who you are everyone has like terrible things in their family histories because family yeah. histories are like, complicated and, and sprawling and right um so yeah um I mean, and asking when people ask you to do that labor for them, that's, you know, asking you to confront them is like, that's just offensive to me too. Like, why, why should that be on Jessica to, you know, fix you? That's not, that's your work. You go work. (laughs) I think do the work is probably the thing I say the most um, to, to peer writers. I don't say that to my students. Um, although I do say to my students, everything is not for you. Um, and that's typically not to all my students. I have a very like, um, like wonderfully mixed classes in the summer. And, and that makes, it makes everything easier when you have like a good group of kids that come from a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different geographies. And it's just, it's so much easier. I found that after teaching at an almost all white classroom. Right. Um, it, you just can't say anything it's so hard to teach because if you're always right and you know everything like why would you want to be taught anything
2: oh gosh
0: um yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah totally.
0: would you like to read one more poem
2: sure I'll read you the newest one um and yeah yeah you've read this manuscript but I'll just say that um hunger, different forms of hunger feature quite prominently in this manuscript and, um, you know, related to Little Red Riding Hood, but also um, trying to sort of face some of the, like hunger was an actual issue for my mother and her family growing up, certainly the family before hers and my grandfather's family. Um, so hunger in and of itself, has it's just been really interesting for me to think about. Um, so just want to preface with that. I don't have a name for it. I did have a name, but I'm working on it. (laughs) All
1: right, Um, unnamed for now. By the age of 15, I was a hungry red wolf.
2: I worked on permit at Joanne Fabrics one summer, scowling women, forming lines at the back of my hangover and with a terrible little crush that kept blooming over floral patterned fabric beneath my palms. I scanned coupons and resisted knowing the definition of a window valence. So many sighs from women in search of a texture, a measurement, some small tool that I could never afford. When I learned the cameras were decoys, it was all over. Stickers, hot glue guns, a bounty of expensive scissors I never used. Most nights, I brought sneakers and ran the four miles back to my childhood home, happy to be moving in the dark from white light. It was worse than McDonald's, which in truth was kind of fun. Working the butt of every parent's joke in the 90s, living the worst case scenario at 16. Kind of punk rock the way MJ and I figured out how to deliver unrecorded beverages in the drive-thru and pocket the complicated math. Though it was here where I found the limitations of my face, where the fry guy would hold me by the shoulders in the walk-in freezer and plant a greasy mouth on mine. And what else could you do but laugh about it later with MJ in the same freezer, sitting next to the chilled cookie dough with a fistful of nuggets, each of you taking too long of a break, taking mouthfuls of soft serve and the feeling that we could never ever truly die. Fast forward to college and I'm at the campus bookstore. I'm at the library. I'm cleaning professors' offices and watching their sick cats. But worst of all, I'm telemarketing, which was an unknown quantity of death. A bait and switch operation for selling car listings with a scripted ghost's voice through the phone. Later, I'd be back alive and against the clock trying to find a thrifted shift that would ever last dancing in New York City all night. The origins of the phrase "go-go dancing" derives from the French "agogo," meaning abundance, meaning galore, which links to the word "lagogo," or a French word for joy. I don't know if I ever found happiness shaking my ass over glass cups and faces gone gloss, but most nights in that mechanical suture, I felt like air, maybe freer than a walk-in freezer. My time and movement in abundance, like no one could ever clock me in. Like no one could ever touch me again. Not my face, not my hand, not my teeth.
1: My, what big, my, what sharp. Like I'd never eat that red hunger again. That's amazing. Thank you so much for reading a new poem. Oh my goodness.
2: Still kind of uh, working on it, but why not?
0: Oh yeah. And your Hunger Poems in Buffalo Girl, so good. Thank you. Thank you for being here today, Jessica.
2: My
1: pleasure.
0: To read more of Jessica Q. Stark's work, check out the episode's show notes, where you will also find a link to purchase Savage Pageant from Birds LLC. If you've enjoyed a poetry podcast, please rate and
1: subscribe to the show. Once again, thank you for listening.